This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. So now I am so delighted today to introduce this lovely group of folks that you're going to see on your screen over the course of the next hour and a half. Um, the topic of today is integrative cancer care, bringing innovative approaches into the clinic. Um, and so these trailblazers that you'll hear from today have all done some really special work at UCSF to bring integrative oncology to the patients who need it um, in our clinics. I'm going to introduce the whole team so that um, you'll know who you're going to be hearing from, and then we'll, we'll be hearing from the first few, and then we'll have time for Q&A at the end. Um, so our first panelist will be Dr. Ashby, uh, Dr. Jennifer Ashby. She's an acupuncturist by training. Um, she's practiced traditional Chinese medicine or East Asian medicine since 1996. Uh, she's been licensed at the Osher Center since 2014. She holds a doctorate of acupuncture and um, uh, East Asian medicine and is a licensed acupuncturist, part of the Polycystic Kidney Disease Center for Excellence at UCSF. She's also taught at the Women's Health. Uh, uh, she's also taught women's health at the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine, and she's had a whole lot of experience in all kinds of arenas. So she'll be talking to us shortly about those subjects. Uh, after her, we'll hear from Dr. Chloe Atreya. Um, she's an associate professor in the Department of Medicine. Um, she is a fabulous colleague that I've gotten to spend a whole lot of time with in the gastrointestinal oncology department. Uh, at the Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center at UCSF. She's also affiliated faculty in integrative oncology at the Osher Center. The third and final panelist will be Dr. Shannon Fogg, uh, who is in, uh, a, f a fellow colleague in my own department of radiation oncology. She's an associate professor. Um, she helps in the neuro-oncology program, and she'll be talking to us about some really uh, interesting work that they're doing to bring exercise and other uh, lifestyle management um, uh, information to patients uh, in her neuro-oncology subset. She's also affiliated faculty at uh, the Osher Center for Integrative Health, seeing folks in integrative oncology. And my co-moderator, Dr. Anand Dhruva, will be helping me uh, in the Q&A, making sure that we really get to all the questions and uh, for all the panelists. He is a professor in the Department of Medicine, Director of Education, integrative oncologist and an Ayurvedic practitioner at the UCSF Osher Center. So um, without further ado, I would love to have our first panelist, Dr. Ashby, come on board. There she is. Thank you very much. And the floor is yours. Thank you. So tonight I'm going to discuss integrative oncology from an East Asian medicine perspective. The term East Asian medicine might be new to you, uh, and you may be more familiar with the term traditional Chinese medicine. We are expanding that these days to make it more inclusive. So um, first, I'd like to go over very briefly how acupuncturists are licensed in the state of California. Uh, people don't really understand what a rigorous training we go through. Uh, it's a four-year master's degree after uh, pre-med sciences are done. This is now becoming what an entry-level doctorate with some added time. There's about 1,300 hours of clinical time with advancing levels uh, in the clinic. Uh, we have to pass state board exams and we are then regulated by a regulatory agency called the Acupuncture Board. Uh, there's an additional 
specialty in the field of East Asian medicine that is a specialty doctorate, which is what I've obtained. It's about two and a half more years and about a year and a half of that uh, includes residency work. Um, and we're also considered primary care providers in the state of California. So I know this looks very packed, but this is a brief introduction of uh, how acupuncture came to be in the West. So the Dutch East India Trading Company uh, found acupuncture, brought it back to Europe about the 15 to 1700s, and it went through various phases over that couple hundred of years of being in favor, out of favor, in favor. Um, it is noted, although I couldn't find proof of it, that hypodermic needles are inspired from Chinese acupuncture needles. Uh, big difference, hypodermic are not filiform, they're hollow. Uh, Chinese acupuncture needles are filiform, meaning that they're solid, so they don't carry a lot of blood product in them. So beginning in about the 1850s, Chinese immigrants come to the United States and they bring their health practices with them. And of course, they still utilize them today. What is Kind of the most popular is that in 1971, Nixon and Kissinger went to China. Uh, their New York Times uh, reporter got acute appendicitis. He had surgery after surgery. He was in tremendous pain, and all they used was acupuncture and moxibustion. But actually, so that's what most people think when they think about it becoming popular in the US. But what really brought it um, into communities outside of Asian populations in the US uh, was the African-American and Hispanic uh, people being the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords, uh, which utilized acupuncture in the 1970s. Uh, they created something called the Lincoln Detox Hospital in the Bronx. And in the 70s, they utilized acupuncture to combat the heroin epidemic and in the 80s for the crack epidemic. In 1985, uh, the National Acupuncture Detox Association method was born, and it is still utilized today, sometimes or used to be part of um, anti-recidivism projects in jails and in courts. And in 1997, the NIH Consensus Conference reported that there was a positive that there was positive evidence for acupuncture's effectiveness. So that was like what 700 years in a minute. Um, I just wanted, we're not going to discuss this, but this is a wonderful article written by this young woman, Anana Ming, uh, about the Black Panther Party's um, in, introduction of acupuncture by the Black Panther Party in the U.S., bringing up two very important um, figures, Dr. Shakur, also known as Tupac's stepfather, and Dr. Small. Dr. Small is actually here in Oakland, just retired two years ago, but in the early 70s, separately, they went to China, followed barefoot doctors, learned acupuncture, brought it back to the U.S. But here's the important part, and this, this, this poll quote that I have is going to lead into my later talk. Um, for the Black Panther Party, acupuncture fit into their social praxis of serving the people, body, and soul, and empowering the marginalized. In the context of distrust, distrust around biomedical institution, acupuncture was appealing because it was strictly non-biomedical, based on notions of self-healing, and as the, as the practice aims to readjust the body's inherent balance. So what is East, East Asian medicine? In a nutshell, it's balanced physiology. So I like to use the term homeostasis. And if we can all agree that a physical body will return to a state of homeostasis, if it can, and given the opportunity, then you really understand the premise of how East Asian medicine works. 
It's all about rebalancing the body. And what does this mean and what does it include? In Chinese medicine, we have the Holy Trinity, which is the mind, the body, and the spirit. And they are inseparable. Um, there's actually no notion of separating a human being into its individual parts. And one of the things that I love about East Asian medicine so much is that each component, the spiritual person, the emotional person, the physical person are equal. There's no hierarchy in this trinity. So if you have a disharmony in one part, you're grieving, let's say, you can feel it physically. Physical problems over time affect you emotionally, can affect you spiritually, and vice versa. It's one of the things that attracted me to this medicine so early on is that it's so beautifully poetic and interrelational. So what is acupuncture? So the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health's definition is that it's a technique in which practitioners stimulate specific points on the body, most often by inserting thin needles through the skin. And this is the important part. It is one of the practices used in traditional East Asian medicine. One, and we will go over what that means in a second. So acupuncture in context. So acupuncture is one part of an entire system with multiple interventions. Acupuncture itself has multiple techniques needle length, styles, electricity, no electricity, seven stars. There's multiple kinds of acupuncture. It, acupuncture comes from Japan and Korea and China. Uh, and there's probably more techniques and styles than I can name. East Asian medicine also incorporates something called moxibustion and cupping, also known as bagua, tuina, gua sha, shoni shin. Tai Chi and Qigong are more the exercise versions. We use Chinese herbal medicine and we do a lot of lifestyle and nutritional counseling based on um, where your imbalances lie and where you live. So micro versus macro is one of the ways that I like to explain the difference really between Western and Eastern medicine. Um, in Western medicine, a person's body is the macrocosms and a macrocosm and the components, individual components of a cell are the microcosm. In East Asian medicine, the body is the microcosm and everything that we come into contact in the universe in our lives is the macrocosm. So what does this mean and why does this matter? It matters because we in East Asian medicine pay attention to all components of a person's life their environment, their surroundings, their work, everything affects our health. And when you're working with an acupuncturist, all of those components are um, discussed and taken into account um, when deciding how to treat you. So this is our circadian rhythm clock. And I, it tells you when things should and, and, and conversely should not be happening in your body. So for example, and I use this as an example because it's so common. Um, people that get tired after lunch between one and three in the afternoon, if they have a dip in energy, well, if you look here between one and three, it's when if you have low energy, um, it has to do with your digestion. Or let's say you are awake from one to 3 a.m. Um, it might mean that you have, it's associated with the liver. You should be in rest and recovery, but if you're not, there might be an issue that you have to deal with, something unresolved that's waking you up at night. 
So in our circadian rhythm, our 24 hour clock, it balances all of the organs and what we should be doing, right? Like you can see that supper time should be five between five and six. Most of us don't even get off work by that time. So we're really not paying attention to what our bodies are meant to do naturally. And this, this circadian rhythm clock shows you where you should be and what you should be doing. And conversely, if you're having trouble at a certain time every day, what we would do to treat that and balance you. So is acupuncture safe? Well, 2.2 million treatments were looked at and the minor side effects within the, all those treatments of pain or discomfort at the site of the needles, needle insertion, infection, bruising, weakness, fading, or nausea were really rare. Um, uh, greater than or equal to one in 10,000 to less, less than one in 1,000. But severe adverse effects like pneumothorax or any kind of cardiac event were very, very rare, less than one in 10,000. So I would call that pretty safe. So what would you expect if you were going, went to go see an acupuncturist? We look at you to diagnose your constitution. And like I said earlier, we diagnose your constitution by paying attention to both all your mind, your body, and your spirit. We do this through what a patient reports to us. We do this through uh, acknowledging what their chief complaints are, as well as their goals. We have something called the 10 questions. And these 10 questions go through all systems in the body, gastrointestinal and respiratory and cardiovascular. We look at a tongue and tongues are fascinating to us because they're a map of all the internal organs. We feel your pulses, which is an art form. We also observe you when you're, you don't really notice that we are trained to use all of our senses um, with your body. We look at your coloring and your odors and your sound and your skin appearance. And then when it comes to oncology, we also take a, we, we have uh, read prior to and, and from you take a history of your oncology treatments, surgeries, medications, and we look to see the effects of all those things on a patient's presenting constitution. So East Asian medicine versus integrative Chinese medicine, which the team here at UCSF, we call ourselves integrative Chinese medicine practitioners. East Asian medicine focus, theory focuses on recreating health and wellness through balanced physiology. Um, it combines all the things that we mentioned earlier, but the team or people that are trained in oncology also incorporate labs, that Western diagnoses, treatments you've had, medications, past and future procedures to inform our treatments. And attention is given in labs very specifically to anemia, platelets, absolute neutrophil counts, liver enzymes, kidney functions, responses to cancer treatment, and a history of any adverse events, events people may have had to these treatments. We incorporate all of this into safely treating you and keeping you safely in treatment. So what is the relationship? It's very unique. We look at you, not just as you're sitting in our office, but we look at you week to week. We pay attention to how you're doing month to month. And we pay attention to where you want to be in six months, a year, five years. We do this, like I said, by paying attention to imbalances in your constitution, your symptom complexes, complexes your lifestyle choices and your goals. And we treat the root of problems, not just the branch so that what we're treating in you is lasting. This is a great study that looked at the mechanisms of action uh, in acupuncture oncology. 
Um, and what they found in a nutshell is that acupuncture affects fibroblast cells, decreases inflammatory cytokines, and increases T lymphocytes, increases adenosine and neuropeptides and opioid peptides and peptide hormones and stem cells. That was a pretty amazing study. So knowing all of that, what does that mean? How do you translate those things? Well, this is a list of the things that we treat most effectively um, as side effects of oncology treatment and after treatment, things that, that, that stick around. Um, neuropathies and depressions and GI and head and neck cancers for saliva and taste and serostomia. Um, these are all the things that, that we help with um, in and post-treatment. So some stats, and these are old, these are already five years old, about three and a half million adults in the U.S. use acupuncture, about one in 10 cancer survivors utilize acupuncture, and with those with cancer utilizing it actually more than those without, and about 60% of the National Cancer Institute's uh, comprehensive cancer centers incorporate acupuncture for cancer symptom management, which I did not know and was happy to learn. But there are barriers. And some of the barriers are just lack of knowledge or lack of insurance coverage or difficulty finding qualified uh, practitioners, cost, and these tend to be more prevalent in minority patients with a lower education. This study was with breast cancer survivors. And I think that there's a way of addressing these barriers uh, that will lead to more equitable access to acupuncture uh, from people with diverse backgrounds. And this is what we will discuss briefly now. It's called group acupuncture and it is not new, but it will be new uh, to UCSF. Group acupuncture tends to be done with multiple people, generally in a circle, in a much larger space. There still is privacy with group acupuncture, not quite as much as one-on-one. -on -one. So you have a slightly less in-depth uh, intake, but all the standards and protocols used in normal acupuncture are kept, but it lowers the barriers of treatment because it's more accessible. The availability of appointments is, is there. You are here at UC, so provider competency are, is there. And for those that are paying out of pocket, it's a more affordable option. So prior research and group style acupuncture, well, this study happened right here um, at UCSF with our own Maria Chow. Um, and basically what they found is that group acupuncture broadens socioeconomic access um, without compromising patients' perspectives of quality of care. Three more studies that I threw in, um, basically all had clinically significant outcomes for pain management, but also in some of these, there were like, some of the reported findings were not expected, like inter and interpersonal um, benefits, and, uh, um, but definitely found that in the group that did treatment versus education, uh, the treatment arm had a, had a much higher benefit for pain reduction. So Dr. Treya and Dr. Druva and Maria Chow uh, came and spoke to me, and we've kind of developed this dream of group acupuncture at Mission Bay serving all three infusion centers. Um, it would be community style um, or group, as I said, uh, filling this gap here at US, UCSF and lowering bar barriers of access to people coming to the only place where we offer that at UCSF currently, which is at, here at the Osher Center, where I am right now. 
Um, but we can't always get patients in here in a timely manner, or it's difficult for patients to get their weekly treatments because we're so busy and we're so full. And with oncology treatment, we know that timing matters. So uh, group acupuncture would allow patients to receive acupuncture more frequently to alleviate any of that list of side effects that I mentioned earlier. Um, like I said, there's health benefits uh, to being treated in a shared experience. And uh, patients will be able to choose one works best for them. For some patients, being treated before infusion helps mitigate side effects better. For some, it's definitely after. And they get to choose for themselves because there will be a greater availability of, of appointments available. Um, it will also potentially keep patients in treatment who may have had adverse effects, events, or effects that had them stop treatment. Um, it'll, in this particular situation, acupuncture would be given separate from the infusions themselves, so people would not have an adverse association to acupuncture. It would guarantee practitioner competency. And acupuncture has its best outcomes when it's done regularly because it has a cumulative effect. One of the studies actually said that um, beneficial um, uh, uh, reporting only happened after the fourth session. So these are the future goals is to help mitigate side effects of oncology treatments efficiently, helping keep patients stable, um, to remain in treatment, creating greater access, bridging gaps socioeconomically, bridging gaps medically and via education, creating greater outcomes, getting greater support from more oncologists, um, and helping to create systems outreach for oncology to patients who otherwise wouldn't have access. Um, and I always like to end with a little humor. Thank you. Thank you. And I love that cartoon. For those who didn't catch it, there's a little penguin with lots of needles and asking, uh, for sure, I don't feel the pain anymore in my foot because uh, the penguin's got needles all over its body. Um, okay, there's there's lots of great questions. And actually, I have a lot of questions for you as well as Dr. Dhruva, but we will keep going and then we'll come back with questions. So thank you, Dr. Ashby, for such a great introduction into acupuncture. Uh, and I'll pass the baton over to Dr. Atreya, who will be speaking about our integrative oncology program and mind-body practice. Okay, perfect. There. Thank you so much for the invitation to present today, and I really enjoyed um, Dr. Ashby's first presentation. My talk tonight will be in two parts, as Dr. Mishra alluded to. Um, the first part will be an introduction to our integrative oncology program here at UCSF, and the second part will focus on a new series of group medical visits that um, Dr. Mishra and I have launched called Mindfulness Practices to Promote Health During Cancer Treatment. So I'll start with an overview of the Integrative Oncology uh, Program, which I have the pleasure to co-direct along with um, Dr. Chow and Dr. Druva. And I'll go over the what, uh, when, and why of this uh, program. So what, while there's certainly been decades of referrals and partnerships between the UCSF Osher Center and the, the Cancer Center, our work has been to establish a more form, formal integrative oncology program across the two centers. And we launched this program in 2017 with philanthropic support. And our program building has focused on addressing two major gaps, that patient demand for integrative oncology exceeds supply and that use outpaces evidence. 
And tonight I will briefly address our work in three areas, research, education, and clinical practice. But first, um, I'll share my perspective as a physician scientist with an MD and a PhD in pharmacology. And um, I, I still do work in, in the lab on uh, targeted therapies. Um, and so I just wanted to do a little comparison of uh, my thoughts about biomedical oncology and integrative oncology, which have shared and complementary goals. Both are focused on individualized care precision medicine in biomedical oncology and personalized care in integrative oncology with an emphasis on the whole person. And um, biomedical oncology may be considered anti-cancer, while integrative oncology complements this by focusing on a pro-health whole person approach. And biomedical oncology is targeted while integrative oncology is holistic, flexible, and responsive. And as an integrative oncology uh, program and now a research hub at the Cancer Center, in just under five years, we've now supported 20 clinical research pilot studies. And over 1,200 patients have participated in these studies, and we're uh, excited that the initial investment of pilot funds has already led to extramural funding. Uh, PIs in our, our program, principal investigators in the program have been awarded prestigious uh, awards such as PCORI, NIH, and foundation awards. And cross-cutting themes across these pilots include a focus on patients in active treatment and uh, also on improving access. Um, that's an emphasis for a majority of these studies. And disparities in terms of underrepresented and underserved patient populations are a primary focus of about 40% of the projects. And another third are testing digital in interventions, looking at virtual delivery as a promising strategy for expanding reach. And a number of our studies are practice-based, aimed at testing models of integrative oncology as part of existing care. And we're very excited about the uh, group acupuncture program that uh, Jennifer's um, planning to launch. I'd also like to highlight the growing evidence base for integrative oncology practices that has led to their inclusion in national cancer uh, care guidelines. And the American Cancer Society guidelines for nutrition and physical activity um, for cancer uh, patients, or the American Cancer Society is was making these recommendations. And then the National Comprehensive Cancer Network is uh, recommending mind-body practices, which I focus on for adult cancer pain, cancer-related fatigue, and distress management. And in addition to conducting research on how to implement guideline-based integrative oncology care, we are also contributing to establishing the guidelines. So Dr. Abrams, um, Civic, and I are part of an expert panel to develop joint um, uh, guidelines with the American Co uh, Society for Integrative, sorry, for Clinical Oncology, as well as the um, Society for Integrative Oncology on uh, integrative oncology care for anxiety and depressive symptoms in adults with cancer. 
And these national practice guidelines are an important way to make integrative oncology approaches a standard part of comprehensive cancer care. For one thing, this is what um, often leads to insurance approvals. And the strongest evidence for mindfulness approaches, including meditation and yoga for people with uh, cancer, really comes from the mindfulness-based stress reduction program that was developed by Don, John Kabat-Zinn in the 1970s. However, most of the studies have been conducted primarily in um, white breast cancer survivors, so primarily women um, and primarily patients who are um, have completed their primary cancer treatment. And uh, MBSR, while a wonderful program, is too intense for most patients who are in active treatment. So in 2015, um, I started my research in integrative oncology, uh, developing and pilot testing uh, a program that we developed at UCSF um, called Being Present. And this is a tailored uh, mindfulness-based program for MBSR understudied populations. So including uh, patients with non-breast cancer diagnoses. My, my uh, focus is on, uh, is on patients with gastrointestinal cancers that tend to um, uh, affect men and women uh, equally. Um, and also a focus on supporting caregivers and, um, and racial and ethnic minorities. And being present evolved into the group medical visits that I'll introduce in, in the second part of my talk. But first, I would like to shift to an update on our education efforts, which include an annual symposium and a faculty scholars program. And in order to bring integrative oncology care to the clinic, we need trained healthcare providers. And so as a means of building capacity, uh, the Integrative Medicine Faculty Scholars Program, led by Drs. Struva and Adler, um, has now trained seven UCSF MDs um, with a variety of uh, backgrounds, uh, medical oncology, symptom management, radiation oncology. And this is a, a wonderful year-long integrative medicine curriculum. And you'll recognize uh, many of these, these names as many, many medical school uh, co-presenters. So that's a, a, a big way that we're able to, to expand um, access to quality integrative oncology care um, through training. And last but not least, clinical services. Ultimately, the goal of integrative oncology research is to improve patient care. And we, um, as a program, have a vision for integrative oncology patient care at UCSF that is accessible, sustainable, and inclusive. And we aspire to a stepped care model maximizing efficiency by stepping patients according to needs, matching integrative oncology interventions to needs, and making the best use of available resources. And so right now, uh, for us, a, a central um, focus is on expanding group med medical visit offerings. In 2018, Dr. Abrams uh, started conducting integrative oncology group medical visits for patients in active cancer treatment. At the time, there was more than a six-month waiting period to see Dr. Abrams, and he was missing a critical window for, for integrative cancer care for patients who were actively receiving treatment. 
And um, he found that the group medical visits were very well received and he enjoyed conducting them. And uh, and to date, he has conducted uh, more than 20 integrative oncology group visit series, serving more than 200 patients. And importantly, group medical visits are a financially viable model. So they're billed to insurance and we found that they were revenue generating when there were at least six patients per group. So in 2021, drawing on what we learned from the being present uh, studies, Dr. Mishra and I launched an entirely new group medical visit series, Mindfulness Practices to Promote Health During Cancer Treatment. And this is a a series of four two-hour sessions that we lead on Zoom. Um, And the four topics are mindfulness practices for emotional regulation, mindful eating, meditative movement, and mind-body practices for fatigue and sleep. The inspirations for this series are, again, that evidence-based guidelines exist, recommending mind-body practices that can alleviate symptoms and also lifestyle factors that have been shown to improve cancer outcomes. How to implement behavioral changes is the hard part. And while mindfulness practices can help, and fortunately free high quality resources are available, a challenge is that we live in an age of information overload, which also means that it's difficult to find time to, to focus on these practices during a usual oncology visit. So our intention is to help patients to select and commit to a few simple practices. And the emphasis is on practice as repetition is key. On the other hand, these repeated practices can be straightforward, brief, and enjoyable. And the session components include the evidence base for the session topic, challenges posed by cancer-related symptoms to following guideline-based recommendations, how mindfulness or mind-body practices can help. And um, there's a real focus on experiential practices. So during our time together, we will um, practice meditation, yoga, qigong, and and other um, practices. And then there's time for brief individual consultations um, and sharing of group wisdom. So being part of a group is, is an important component here. And then we provide prescriptions rather than homework for practices to take up with a curated list of resources provided in our after-visit summary. And so far the patient evaluations have been very favorable. And Dr. Mishra and I initiated our fifth series with another uh, group of eight patients um, last Friday. And so, I'll now, in our last few minutes, give you a quick taste of what we cover um, without the experiential components. In cultivating emotional balance, an important point is that meditation practice does not make pain or difficult emotions go away. And it's said that suffering is pain multiplied by resistance. Meeting the reality of the present moment without resistance can reduce the suffering associated with getting caught up in a story, a stress reaction, and allow space for positive mood states such as joy, gratitude, self-compassion, and loving kindness to simultaneously emerge. And over the four weeks, we also explore nine attitudes of mindfulness from John Kabat-Zinn, and our first week focuses on gratitude and generosity. 
one of the most effective ways to overcome our brain's negativity bias is to rewire one's brain towards happiness by expressing gratitude. And so gratitude journaling is one of our recommended home practices. Our second session focuses on mindful eating and drawing on work of uh, Dr. pediatrician Dr. Jan Chosen Bays, including her actual drawings. We discuss cancer symptoms and treatment side and how treatment side effects can uh, get in the way of healthy eating. And there are also uh, several treatment side effects listed here for which the National Cancer Institute recommendations are to eat meals slowly, eat small portions of food more frequently. And so we practice slow it down practices like this one here, one bite at a time, or also called put down that utensil, which can help. And chewing well can also help patients, um, can help aid in, in digestion. And then another uh, mindful eating practice is to give thanks. And the practices of giving thanks and looking deeply into one's food can help us to make healthier food choices. And these practices can also help us to appreciate food as good medicine to sustain us at times when eating may not be en enjoyable, such as when people are um, experiencing the, the symptoms or side effects that are listed on this slide. And then the topic for week three is meditative movement. And understandably, people who are undergoing treatment for cancer face many challenges to adhering to physical activity guidelines. And meditative movement practices, which integrate physical movement, posture, breathing, and awareness um, are a great way to get moving. And these are ancient practices which have many health benefits, including being another way to access grounded presence while when sitting meditation uh, may be difficult due to pain, sleepiness, or intrusive thoughts. And with the uh, meditative movement practices that I introduce, which are uh, walking meditation, Tai Chi, Qigong, and yoga, the emphasis is on how, not on how much. And coming back to attitudes of mindfulness, accepting one's physical and emotional condition as it is in a given moment, and non-striving. And again, benefits include getting moving, which can help engaging in, uh, help to make engaging in additional physical activity easier. And again, also in times of strong emotions like churning anxiety, these gentle movement practices can result in biochemical shifts that allow the mind and the body to settle. And the pictures of people practicing outdoors are also reminders of the healing qualities of being in nature as well as the benefits of practicing together with family or friends, both for motivation and community support. And then our final session focuses on mind-body practices for fatigue and sleep. And fatigue is the most common symptom that's experienced by people with cancer. And the bad news is that cancer-related fatigue may be both mental and physical and may not be fully relieved by sleep or rest. But the good news is that studies have shown that activity, including yoga, is effective at reducing symptoms of fatigue. So for the fatigue portion of the session, we continue our exploration of meditative movement. And cancer also poses many challenges for getting good sleep. 
Fortunately, however, there are also many avenues to improve sleep, including what we explored in the previous sessions. So meditation, meditative movement, and my, uh, meditative movement practices and mindful eating all contribute to that mind-body-spirit integration that Dr. Ashby was also talking about, which can help to promote better sleep quality. And on the left is a long list of ways to improve sleep from the National Cancer Institute. And what I emphasize is that implementing uh, many of what are sometimes called sleep hygiene uh, techniques can be forms of mindfulness practices. And an attitude of mindfulness that we focus on in week four is letting go, which is also essential for sleep. And then finally, the National Cancer Institute reports that cancer-related, uh, cancer treatment-related symptoms come in clusters. And what we try to impart over the four weeks is that mindfulness practices are a simple yet powerful antidote to these symptom clusters. The mindfulness practices are free and do not require a lot of time and energy. And each time we practice mindful awareness, we're, we're strengthening our ability to um, stay present and fully experience this moment. And that you can practice these, um, you can use these practices anytime in your day without any formal posture, which can include, you know, waiting between appointments. And so I'll just end with a few of our, um, our takeaways. Again, really focusing on, on being present um, rather than getting pulled into the past or the future can help one to fully experience this life and um, experience gratitude and, and simple pleasures. Um, sometimes we hear that people discover what they can do at a time when many roles and abilities seem to have been lost. Um, there's a focus on accepting what is, again, that concept of suffering as uh, pain multiplied by resistance, and um, a finding of unexpected commonality, so solidarity with other people who are in the same boat and community and realizing that um, none of us are really alone. And um, this feeling of connection, both with other people, um, but also with pets and with nature. And it's and fundamentally, it's a form of, of spirituality, which um, Western biomedicine tends to shy away from, but I think is very important for our patients. And there's a sharing of group wisdom. Um, so we emphasize that we're all learners and teachers and work on that cultivation of um, the inner wisdom that each person has. And um, we also have found that different things work for different people and may work for different people on different days. And so we um, encourage a gentle curiosity um, and also that, um, that repetition is, is key um, combined with um, self-compassion. So um, when one doesn't practice for whatever reason to have a willingness to, to try again, and it's, um, and it's possible that even these simple practices over time may be transformative. So thank you very much for your attention and um, I'll be happy to take questions at the end. Thank you so much, Dr. Atreya. I always love hearing what you're up to, uh, which is a lot. Um, so thank you again for that. Dr. Fogg, we'll move into your presentation. There she is, perfect. 
All right. Good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Shannon Fogg, and I will be talking about integrative cancer care for uh, patients with primary and metastatic brain tumors. Um, so even though brain tumors are less common than other cancers, such as breast cancer or prostate cancer, to give you an idea of the prevalence, more than 79,000 new cases of primary brain tumors will be diagnosed this year. Almost 700,000 people in the U.S. are living with a primary or metastatic brain tumor. And this year, nearly 17,000 people will lose their battle with a brain tumor. And the most basic description of a brain tumor is a collection of abnormal cells that grows in the brain or central spine canal. And while we don't know the exact causes of a brain tumor, researchers are examining a number of factors that could contribute to the causes. Common signs and symptoms of brain tumor include unusual or out of the ordinary headaches, seizures, memory or personality or behavioral changes, inability to process information, speech difficulty, visual changes, um, change in motor control or difficulty with balance. And this is by no means a comprehensive list. And the symptoms are often related to the location of the tumor as different parts of the brain have different functions. Um, we typically diagnose a brain tumor with an MRI used with contrast, and that's the gold standard, but often patients end up in the ER with new unexplainable symptoms and a CT is done. If it's concerning for a brain tumor, then an MRI is followed. Actual uh, identification or diagnosis of a brain tumor requires tissue samples, and that's the most reliable way to officially diagnose a tumor. And there's been uh, many advances in the last few years of looking at not only the basic pathology of the tumor, but also lots of different tumor markers that are helping us come up with new therapies every day. Um, tumors are typically divided into two broad categories of a primary or metastatic tumor, with the main difference being where the tumor originates. Primary brain tumors begin in the brain and tend to stay in the brain. Um, they may be benign, meaning they're not cancerous, or they may be malignant or cancerous. Metastatic tumors begin as a cancer somewhere else in the body. It could be from a lung cancer, breast cancer, or another primary malignancy, and spread to the brain and are almost always malignant. And this is just a MRI scan showing a primary brain tumor and a metastatic brain tumor. And of note, almost two thirds of the patients with metastatic brain tumors have more than one tumor at diagnosis. The most common uh, primary brain tumors that we see are meningiomas and gliomas. Uh, gliomas include low-grade astrocytomas, malignant astrocytomas, glioblastomas, and oligodendrogliomas. Um, and typically, primary brain tumors are treated with surgery, followed by radiation therapy and chemotherapy. Surgery is used to remove as much of the tumor uh, as possible without causing neurologic harm. Radiation is used to disable cell production and shrink the tumor, and chemotherapy is used to kill tumor cells or interfere with their growth. In addition to the intrinsic effects these patients might have from the tumor itself or surgery, the treatment itself can actually impact patients and cause changes in neurocognition, including slower processing, poor attention, short-term memory, lack of abstract thinking ability, changes in personality or judgment, tiredness or fatigue, which we learned about in the prior presentation, headaches, um, difficulties with vision, motor weakens, uh, weakness or difficulty with balance. 
And the impact of these deficits on patients' quality of life, coupled with the devastating news of living with an often incurable tumor um, with limited prognosis, can also lead to anxiety, depression, decreased quality of life. And they also have medication side effects. So medications uh, used to control side effects from a primary tumor, such as anti-seizure medications or steroids, can also affect quality of life and functional ability. And steroids in particular can cause significant global side effects, ranging from muscle weakness, insomnia, or mood disturbances. So while much has been described about integrative approaches to common cancers like breast cancer, lung cancer, or prostate cancer, very little has been focused on integrative strategies for this patient population, which has a lot of unique uh, considerations. And yet integrative approaches are the most frequently requested thing by patients in survivorship groups and uh, from their physician. We'll start with exercise because this has been demonstrated to positively uh, impact patients with cancer and is actually recommended by the American Cancer Society and other national societies. Um, But most of these studies have focused on patients, again, with other types of cancer who tend to have a higher baseline function and um, neurocognitive status. And while there are limited reports outlining the potential benefits and outcomes of exercise on patients with brain tumors, all of them suggest that uh, they can benefit both functional status, quality of life, and have very few adverse effects. Um, Other studies have shown a benefit in neurocognition and in physiologic outcomes, and there may actually be a link between exercise practices and survival in this patient population. So the UCSF Neuro-Oncology Workout for Wellness Program, WOW program, um, was launched in 2019 with the goal to provide complementary access to exercise counseling for patients with primary brain tumors um, and uh, their caregivers as well. And the goal was to help support their individual wellness goals through physical activity. Um, It was the first program nationally to implement a structured individualized exercise program and to support patients in neuro-oncology. And yet, even with this amazing resource, we were puzzled uh, two years now, yes, we've had the pandemic, but still the low numbers of patients actually being connected to it and using this uh, resource. And when we took a deeper dive into why this might be, we heard from patients that their top worry about initiating exercise was their perceived physical limitations following surgery and their treatment in addition to symptoms they were experiencing like tiredness and fatigue. So they didn't feel, you know, that they would have the energy to successfully participate in a program. And interestingly, while most of our providers felt that exercise was important for patients' lifestyle, should be integrated into the treatment of patients with primary uh, brain tumors and felt that exercise improved their patient's quality of life, decreased their patient's fatigue and reduced treatment-related side effects, only 57% of providers initiated a conversation about exercise with patients. When we asked what would motivate providers to promote exercise, the top motivators included a perceived benefit to patients' quality of life and making sure that the program was free to patients. Barriers that providers pointed out for provider-patient discussions about uh, exercise included a lack of time in their visit, um, not having the appropriate diet or expertise Uh, expertise to discuss exercise with patients and concern that the patients might have competing priorities. So if they're discussing things like prognosis and their treatment, maybe it's not the right time to talk about exercise. 
Um, some of our providers were concerned about potential limitations and complications, just like our patients were with patients um, exercising, um, including inability to participate uh, from side effects of the treatment, physical deficits and fatigue. So both the providers and the patients are worried about similar things. So based on these results, we're developing strategies to educate both our patients and providers about what the benefits are, how we can work through these limitations and really bring this program to all of our patients. Other integrative approaches for this patient population include diet interventions, supplements, plant therapies, mind-body approaches, which we just heard a great presentation about, and symptom management. Diet, we're extrapolating from benefits that we found in other cancer types and recommending a whole food, plant-based, anti-inflammatory diet. And while clinical evidence is still limited in this evolving field, increasing numbers of ongoing trials suggest that a ketogenic diet is emerging as a potential therapeutic option and might be combinable with existing antineoplastic treatments for malignant gliomas. A few promising supplements and plants have also arisen, um, including Boswellia and cannabis that have shown benefit. Clinical trials have demonstrated the uh, efficacy of Boswellia and its phytochemicals against multiple inflammatory conditions like multiple sclerosis and other inflammatory conditions, and they've shown benefit uh, or beneficial effects towards brain tumor-related edema with conflicting results in anti-tumor activity. However, even if there is no treatment effect on brain tumors in terms of anti-tumor activity, the management of glioma-associated edema and minimizing steroid use is still a very compelling reason to consider this supplement. And cannabis is not only helpful for symptom management, including nausea, appetite, neuropathy, anxiety, and insomnia, but has also been shown um, to have uh, potentially anti-cancer benefits. We heard a lot about mind-body benefits and in uh, if we extrapolate to the brain tumor population, acupuncture may have a benefit. Um, and this is coming from studies that have looked at treatments with patients that had a stroke or ischemic event, um, showing that acupuncture can actually enhance stroke recovery um, through neurogenesis. And looking at yoga, I studied on the MD Anderson with patients randomized to a 12-week yoga intervention had less symptom severity, less depressive symptoms, and a better overall quality of life. So a lot of potential for these mind-body interventions within this patient population. Uh, we have a lot of opportunities to also think about how we can use integrative uh, approaches to symptom management, including improving neurocognition and having uh, different supplements or therapies that again are extrapolating from other areas such as uh, Alzheimer's and other diagnoses to really help improve neurocognition. Thinking about how we can improve things like nausea and appetite, fatigue and insomnia. So in conclusion, there are unique considerations for this patient population and we have opportunities to extrapolate both from what we've learned works well in other cancers and develop and study new interventions and therapies to address patient, this patient population and their unique needs. Thank you, Dr. Fogg. Um, a wonderful presentation and very specific uh, for folks who are interested in brain tumors, which is great. Um, I would love to have our panelists and Dr. Dhruva, our co-moderator, join so that we can all have a virtual um, session with our audience here. We've got some great questions. 
so we will definitely get to those and Dr. Dhruva and I will um, alternate. And so I'll, I'll get us started um, with a question for Dr. Dhruva and then a second question related, but broadly to all the panelists. Um, the, que- the first part A for Dr. Dhruva is um, obviously you're an expert in Ayurveda and cancer care. So it would be wonderful to hear um, obviously, we don't have a full time for a full presentation, but we'd love to hear a bit about how you think about Ayurveda and oncology. And then broadening out um, both you, you as well as the others, um, something that has come up through the series and frankly with many patients, and I'm sure some of your patients, is there's so much. There's so much that we've discussed over these handful of weeks. There's so much we've discussed even just today. And how do we with limited time, limited energy, uh, as patients, as caregivers, and as providers, how do we balance strategies? Um, How do we keep realistic, meet the patient where the patient is, and not add to the stress or guilt or pressure that patients feel as they may be going through this journey? So, So I'll start with Dr. Dhruva, and then, yeah, I'd love to hear how everyone approaches that with patients. Thanks, Kavita. Um, yeah, I wanted to just briefly comment on uh, Ayurvedic medicine and, and applications in oncology care. And so, as many of you may know, Ayurvedic medicine is a traditional system of medicine from South Asia that emphasizes use of utilizing natural practices to attain a state of homeostasis, a term you heard a little earlier today, uh, or internal balance, and also balance with with ourselves and the uh, and the world itself. So it utilizes nutrition, lifestyle, and plant medicines to both prevent and treat disease. In terms of its applications in oncology care, it can be a method to recover from cancer treatment and to address cancer-associated symptoms. Uh, We've conducted some early research showing that Ayurvedic approaches are um, feasible for cancer patients to do and that they may help to improve quality of life and address symptoms like fatigue, sleep, and mood disturbance. Um, I could also add that a lot of what uh, Jennifer Ashby talked about earlier about East Asian medicine could really carry across directly to Ayurvedic medicine because there are many, many similarities between those two systems of medicine. And then I'm tempted to start to answer your question about shall I, shall I do that or shall I pass it to others, Kavita? No, no, please. Yeah, please give us your thoughts and then we'll um, pass it to the other. I think in terms of choosing approaches, I mean, it is so challenging. There's so many different uh, things available and and, you know, I think uh, patients are always bombarded with suggestions from, you know, well-meaning friends and family, and it does become overwhelming and stressful. Uh, so I think that's where sometimes having a provider uh, like some of the people that you met today can be really helpful to help sort of guide or talk through options. Um, obviously, we look at research evidence whenever possible to guide choices. And then I, when I work with patients, I really like to find out what inspires them and what sort of motivates them. And, and that's really important in helping to choose choose uh, paths as well. That's super thoughtful. Um, that resonates for me for sure. How about for the others? Maybe we'll start with Dr. Ashby and uh, go through the line. I think that, uh, thanks, by the way, for tonight. This is fabulous, all of you. Thank you so much. Um, I, I think start with what's accessible and be less concerned with finding something that's not where you need it to be in the moment you need it to be there. Um, so, so yeah, I think that we are a unique resource for people in terms of finding uh, safe places to go 
I think that as as we get busier and this integrative component gets bigger, we're going to have to find another way to do that. Um, uh, but yeah, I just say stay close to home because you're not going to have the energy to go much further to do it <laughs> anyway. That's super helpful. And actually, just to follow up on that before we hear from the others, there was a question on uh, finding a good acupuncturist in your area. So yeah, if you have some tips on that specifically, that would probably be a I, I think that in California, most acupuncturists that you find are good acupuncturists, but having a specialty in oncology is unusual. Um, so it's a matter of asking a series of questions about their experience with oncology, with oncology, with the particular kind of cancer you're experiencing. And um, if having a hard time uh, really finding someone, um, what happens is people email me. <laughs> So, so everyone just gets to email Dr. Ashby. So, sounds perfect. No, we won't do that to you. But, but it, yes. So, uh, so hearing that being uh, realistic on what's accessible, um, uh, particularly for acupuncture, what, what might be close to home. Um, perfect. I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Atreya uh, in case she wants to add. Yeah, I think I'll I'll echo what um, has already been been said. I think. Um, I, I try to figure out from um, patients that I'm seeing um, how they connect to joy. Um, and I think that that's a good starting place is like trying to, because it's, um, if something feels like a chore that you should do, then it's easy to drop. If it's something that's like, oh, I, I love doing this, then it's, then it's like, okay, so let's, let's explore that. And let's see if we can expand on that a bit. So I think of a patient, for instance, who um, felt great joy and connection when she was around pine trees. And, um, and so then we talked about how, well, is there a way that you're, you know, when you're in the CT scanner, when you're in the MRI, like, can you kind of, again, sort of connect to your love of pine trees and how you feel around pine trees? that you feel there, like even kind of like bring that with you wherever you are. So kind of like, I think maybe, you know, first thinking about where one feels joy or connection and then seeing if it can be expanded into those places where it's not something extra that it's added is added, but it's kind of like the how of being in that moment. Um, that's my suggestion. Mm, beautifully said, beautifully said. Um, Dr. Fogg, anything to add? I 100% agree with that. I think that there's no um, patient who does 100% of every integrative uh, technique available. So don't let perfectionism be the enemy of the good. I love what Dr. Trey said, go towards what feels easy, what you find joy, what um, is, you know, a little bit of just in something easier to do um, and practice. Don't be discouraged if you try something and, you know, particularly like with meditation, for example, you don't feel like it works. Keep practicing um, and trying different things. And again, it just finding what resonates the most with you. Perfect. That's super. And I am hearing in part of that also the idea of smart goals, sort of specific and timely measurable kind of making it bite size. Great. I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Dhruva for our next question. Thank you. Um, this was um, actually a question for, for Dr. Ashby. Um, and it was, um, could you explain a bit more about the role of Qigong in uh, oncologic treatment and what kind of Qigong could be helpful uh, 
uh, and some few examples were given, Diane Qigong or Guolin Qigong. I think maybe, uh, Chloe, you may have thoughts about this as well, so maybe for, for both of you. I am not a Qigong um, teacher, but so I can't tell you what type of Qigong is really best for oncology, but the beauty of Qigong is that they're individual exercises with an individual um, goal. So let's say somebody's having shortness of breath. There would be one Qigong exercise for the breath. Let's say somebody has, uh, uh, their, their kidneys are struggling. There's going to be one exercise to focus on the kidneys. So basically what it does is it, it strengthens the area that is, that is lacking or suffering. Um, and, and there's medical Qigong so much medical qigong out there but the different styles i'm afraid i don't know well enough to know what would be right for you and the, and the difference between that real quick and tai chi is that tai chi is that the, all the a series of movements strung together into a continuous form where where qigong is just that individual movement for one goal Wait, did you want to add anything to um yeah maybe i'll add something and and again um i am i'm not a, a of Qigong, I, I did study some Qigong to be able to, um, to share it um, with patients. And what my teacher is emphasizing for our group, um, which is, is varied and it's a group setting, so we don't go like deeply into what an individual patient is experiencing, um, is some of the, the common like ways of finding, finding balance finding, um, you know, in, in a balance of, of uh, energy. So kind of like the, the calming of the mind um, and also like bringing energy back to the body. And I think what's really resonated for our group also is um, like with other East Asian medicine practices, the um, that integration with, with nature and with, you know, that microcosm macrocosm, um, where we really bring the, the Qigong meditation aspects into the movement practice. Um, and I, I think that that has been healing for people. Wonderful. Um, I'm going to pepper this question over to Dr. Fogg and the others can for sure comment as well. Um, is it possible to be a patient with integrative UCSF doctors if our primary oncologist is at another facility? And what is the best way to become a patient? Absolutely. So I have lots of patients that are being seen by oncology providers, even radiation oncology providers within my own practice, as well as all over the state of California. Unfortunately, when we do those visits, they've limited now um, in-state versus out-of-state. So that is a barrier. Um, but otherwise, absolutely. And um, we're happy to see those patients. Uh, in terms of getting, uh, I do believe that the OSHA Center requires a referral. So having your provider uh, put in a referral to the OSHA Center is what I'm aware of is the way to be able to get patients uh, seen, but it should not be limited by who your provider is. Again, even if they're within UCSF, outside of UCSF, as long as they're in the state of California. Perfect. And Dr. Ashby, anything to add on the acupuncture front? No, I think that's pretty much it. The refer. I mean, we get, there's a five on my team here and we can get upwards of 80 referrals a week. So that's why I'm really pushing this idea that Dr. Trey and Dr. Drew became with of this group acupuncture at Mission Bay so that we can see more people better. We're, it's, we're, we're still working on it. 
but um, no, referral is the best way. And um, for those who need to get care uh, outside of UCSF, closer to their home, what is there a website or is there some way for patients to figure out who might have some uh, cancer, you know, education specifically within acupuncture providers or what might be some key questions to ask to their local acupuncturists? Okay, so I'm not aware of any kind of database of resource of people that have been trained um, or have, a, you know, a lot of experience in oncology. Um, questions would would be just that, like, have you had any special training? Have you had oncology patients? Um, a big one is, uh, what is your theory about oncology treatment um, to make sure that they're not going to in any way... Uh, uh, reduce the efficacy of a treatment that someone's chosen. And these are the important parts of, 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 uh, of choosing an acupuncturist when you're going through cancer treatment. So experience matters. Years in practice matter. Um, and attitude about the treatment that you're choosing matters. I think those would be the most three most important. Perfect. Thank you. I'll pass it to Dr. Dhruva. Uh, I think this is for, for uh, Chloe and, and Kavita. Could you explain what grateful journaling is? I think it came up in your in your talk. Well, um, I mean, there's there's no one way of doing it, but it's um, it's it's basically um, writing down things that one is is grateful for, and it can be a list. Um, it can be um, like a you know a journal entry in paragraph form. It can be a jar where things are dropped in. Um, what um, what I think is important about it and what has been my personal experience, because I do gratitude journaling each night, is um, that um, it, can, uh, it can sort of reframe one's day. So I found that when I'm making a list of all the things that I'm grateful for that happened over the course of the day before I'm trying to go to sleep, um, that um, I, I realize over the course of the day, those, those little things like, you know, someone's, someone's smile, someone's kind word, you know, a flower that was beautiful, like all of those things, um, I, I notice more um, knowing that I'm going to be jotting, jotting these things down um, before I'm, you know, trying to let my, my brain relax in the evening. So that's, so that's, um, so that's part of that um, kind of counteracting the, the negativity bias that our, our brains are naturally kind of like tugged toward the, the hard stuff. And that can overpower that, that balance, but we can retrain it so that we notice uh, the positive things as well. That's perfect. And I'll just add a comment actually um, somewhat related that it's come up in a few other questions, which is, you know, I have a really busy mind. Meditation doesn't resonate. How do I do this? It doesn't work for me. Um, and I'll just pick up on something that Dr. Atreo was just saying, you know, she was obviously describing the journaling um, that may work for you. It may not work for you. And, and some of the, some of the things that we really want uh, patients to know is that what may work for you one day may not another day. And what may work for one patient may not for another patient. And that's really true. And so uh, trying different techniques can be helpful for any of these things. So Dr. Atreya talked about, you know, mindful eating practices that sometimes really resonates for patients. Movement can really resonate when you can't sort of find yourself in a sitting, you know, lotus position trying to do that meditation. There may be other types to try. Um, grateful journal journaling being one of them. Um, perfect. 
So um, Shelly from our audience asked, that's wonderful that you um, have created to Dr. Atreya a group of inter- uh, integrative oncology fellows. Are there plans to expand this to other providers such as APPs? I think there would be a robust interest in this and would be a way to expand access as UCSF Cancer Center has a large number of oncology APPs. Uh, I wonder if you want to briefly comment on that and maybe the others want to step in as well. I, I would actually like to give that one to Dr. Druba. Perfect. Right. Yeah, the short answer is yes. There's <laughs> definitely interest. Uh, you know, we, we started with physicians because uh, that was what we were most familiar with as physicians. But um, as, as many of you know in the audience, uh, nurses have been the leaders in this area well, long before physicians have taken this up, uh, you know, for many decades, really. And so, yes, we have a lot of interest in, in training uh, nurse practitioners and, and physician's assistants as well uh, to, to, you know, to, to do some of this work also. So that's, that's something we're looking for uh, as our next step. Do you want to ask the next question, Dr. Zuba? Yeah, I do, actually. There was one I thought would be fun for the whole group, maybe, uh, to talk about. Um, and, and this is from, uh, so it says, is there one type of program more successful than another based on the type of cancer a patient has? For example, I have prostate cancer. Does exercise have bigger impact than nutrition? So maybe that could be something um, for, for the group. I'm going to start by saying I don't know the answer to that, but now I want to do studies on it. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> It's a, it's a great question, and um, I almost wonder if it's limited by where we've actually done the research. So it's not like diet or exercise may benefit a different patient population more or less, but where have we studied it the most? Um, and yeah, I'll also add um, that this the programs need to be tailored to. Um, to meet the needs for the, like for the population so that they actually want to practice. So I mentioned that most of the literature for um, uh, mindfulness is in um, breast cancer survivors. There's one study that kind of pulls all the other positive studies down, which is in, um, in men with prostate cancer. And I don't think it means that these approaches don't work for prostate cancer. I think it means that this like specific way that it's it's been presented to women who are breast cancer survivors didn't resonate for the the men with prostate cancer so that they didn't actually engage in the practices and likewise the um the studies have very few patients who are uh, undergoing treatment for metastatic disease and it doesn't mean that these practices don't work for patients who have advanced cancer, but it does mean that likely, I think that they don't enroll in a program that is as intensive and rigorous as, as the mindfulness-based stress reduction um, program. And so we need to uh, tailor these approaches. And that's, I would say the same thing goes for um, di- diverse um, patients, that there are there is tailoring that we, we need to keep doing to um, to enhance the the relevance because otherwise you know it's it's not worth people's time if it's not if it's not resonating. It's a really good point. I want to add to that too that in East Asian medicine, I can have five people with you know stage you know three fill in any cancer and you're all going to present differently to me. 
um, based on your constitution. So even if I'm focusing on diet or I'm focusing on exercise, it's going to be a little bit different for each and every one of you, because it's one thing about these integrative holistic coaches is they're not one size fits all. Right. And same with choosing what you're going to utilize. So, um, so maybe that's not a good thing to study because we, <laughs> we really can't generalize for it when you're talking about uh, individuals' experiences with, with cancer. Can I just ask, ask a follow-up <laughs> to, to that, Jennifer? Do you feel like there's a referral bias that like you're, you're seeing a subset of patients? So ironically, in the years that I've been here, we've all gotten good at different cancers. Ah, right. So I'm kind of blood and bone and gut, right? Midia's breast, you know, everybody's just kind of developed. We've kind of developed our fortes based on what we just happen to see most of at the time, at whatever time. So, um, no, I think that when I'm going through the referrals, we all, we all go through the referrals. We all try to go through the referrals. No, I don't think we're getting more of one than another. Um, and glios, I do a lot of glios. Glioblastomas. Um, in did you want to add to this one? I think I, I totally agree with what others have said. And we do have some data in some tumors, and we have some good data across tumor types. And so, for example, Dr. Marshall had presented some work on exercise and a whole list of different types of cancers, and basically, exercise helped in all of them except the only questionable one was melanoma, but we presume that's because of the sun exposure and not wearing sunscreen. So, so uh, we are still waiting for more data and the data that we have is fairly convincing for at least exercise, nutrition, and some uh, mind-body medicine, acupuncture, you know, for all the things that we've talked about, there is convincing data across many different types of cancers. Um, but yes, as always, always go to your personal physicians to figure out where you are at, and what's going to be most helpful for you. Um, let's move. Nice. Add, a, add one, a couple. Oh, of yeah. Things. Please. I was going to say, it depends a little bit also on the outcome of interest too. So it's sort of like, uh, what is it good for? And what is it good for relative to the outcome? So like for fatigue, for example, there's good evidence for yoga and certain supplements and acupuncture uh, for other uh, outcomes that may be slightly different uh, considerations. And then I think there are certain unique things for nutrition for different diagnoses too. So like prostate cancer, maybe you would have a conversation about lycopene and pomegranate and soy. And if you had breast cancer, maybe it's a slightly different conversation about some soy and other things as well. So there are some sort of unique things relating to nutrition uh, as well. Yeah, perfect. Um, I'm going to ask Julia in the audience that asked a question. Please speak to how to make integrative oncology the norm for cancer patients rather than the exception. What will it take at UCSF and in the medical system? Exclamation mark. Um, uh, or question mark, exclamation mark, I've put on. I have been a cancer patient at UCSF for over 10 years. On no occasion do I remember any recommendations, referrals for integrative care in support of my treatment and well-being. I've been fortunate to find these resources on my own and credit my survival to integrative practices. Um, I wonder if uh, anyone wants to take a stab at that question? How do we make this to the norm versus the exception? Um, I think the easy short answer is is the is research, but but I think there's probably a lot more nuance to it than that. Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll let others speak speak to some of that. I could briefly add that 
um, on the guidelines committees, we're trying to figure out what, what are the guidelines that then become like a national guideline that one should recommend this, not that it just, you know, it may be recommended that it's not harmful, but we should recommend this. And that's, that's what we're getting to with the guidelines. And those are based on, um, on research studies. I would say the other piece has to do with, um, with supply. Um, so, you know, we talked about, um, uh, like with Dr. Abrams, like a, a six month wait list and, and, um, we even, you know, would, everybody knew about that. So there were fewer referrals because we, you know, um, because we knew, knew that. So, so that's the other piece is the, you know, the training so that there are, there are more providers available who um, can provide these services. I think there, um, it's really hard to fit into our, our usual oncology care. So what I'm finding is that we do need to carve out um carve out time that it's part of the comprehensive care, but it's, it's not part of the, you know, half an hour visit that we might have for biomedicine. To these, I also want to add that um, when the suggestions are not coming from an MD, patients are reluctant to tell their providers what else they're doing. And so sometimes credit isn't given where credit is due. Um, and so I think that uh, you know, there's a, an entire array of people that support these kinds of treatments. Um, but I think if patients were more vocal, they could help. Um, and the other, just to bring back, uh, Dr. Ashby, you had mentioned, you know, sort of insurance coverage. And I think Dr. Fogg, you also talked about, you know, how do you bring this to patients at a you know financially feasible way or free to patients. And so that's the other part of, I think, what Dr. Trey is working on. If these can be in the guidelines, supported by the data, then we can actually go to insurance companies and uh, the political system and actually get it paid for for patients. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it is a continuum which takes time. Um, let's get to a couple other questions. Dr. Atreya, how can one participate in your and my series, does one need a referral from the main oncologist or primary care? Why don't you take that one? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, we are, we have series ongoing, talk to your oncologist and have them reach out to us. Um, we are, we are also building these up, uh, uh, as we pilot new sessions. Um, and then I might just throw a small one over to Dr. Ashby. Are other Eastern practices like Reiki and Jinshin Jitsu useful in cancer treatment at all? So I'm not, I'm not an expert in either of those, um, but I would say Reiki for sure. Um, and uh, Jinsen Jitsu, I'm not really sure. I really can't comment on that one, but I do think that Reiki being an energetic rebalancing form of work would be terrific. Absolutely terrific. Does anybody else know about Jinsen Jitsu? I mean, I do know that with any movement and, and Dr. Marshall and I had a long conversation on the side during the tumor board panel of January, 2021, about 150 minutes of exercise. And I'm always teaching people, you have to move, but don't do too much, like build up your tolerance. So in anything you're doing, if it's making you too tired in the beginning, it's too much build up. Perfect. And Dr. Duva, you want to take the last question and then I'll close this out. Yeah, it's a question about cannabis and, and its uses in oncology. I think it's specifically about cannabis fighting cancer, but maybe it's also more broadly about other uses in oncology. I've seen so many benefits being used, first of all, in the symptom management category. So thinking about insomnia, anxiety, um, you know, stimulating appetite, helping with nausea, 
Um, and, you know, having patients find the right blend that's right for them. Um, so I have a lot of patients that say, I don't, I want to take this because I don't want to experience a high. I want to think about how this is going to help my symptoms. So I absolutely have seen a lot of positive benefits. I think there's conflicting evidence about the efficacy in terms of curing cancer. There's a lot of compelling data, but we're still at a place where we're learning more about it. Um, and I'm really excited to see where that goes in the next five to 10 years. Um, I'll just comment on the remaining questions. One was from a uh, wonderful massage therapist who says they have an interest in oncology. So please reach out to any of us. We'd be happy to chat with you more um, about your specific desires. And, and, you know, if you want to help out in this world, we are always looking for more people. Um, and then the other question was around, are any of these practices applicable to cancer survivors and non-cancer patients? Yes, with other morbid conditions for sure. And as we were going along, along the way, we talked in, in this series and in other um, uh, sessions, we talked about nutrition and exercise, mind-body practices, sleep, uh, acupuncture, all of these can be helpful in a variety of con conditions. Um, and we're happy to talk more about that in another setting. So thank you all so much to my panelists today. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I wish we had another hour, um, but uh, uh, we are all up on time. And so thank you so much for your um, gracious offering of knowledge and your time tonight. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv. 